From the Sydney Opera House, this is It's a Long Story, a podcast that uncovers the lives and stories behind the ideas. I'm Edwina Throsby. Part of the wider struggle for science as well is to try to, you know, maintain sanity, if you like. Back in his student days, science writer and journalist Mark Linus was one of the first and loudest voices of the anti-GMO movement. He wrote some of the most read articles about genetically modified organisms, led protests, and may or may not have coined the term Frankenfood. But then he really looked into the science of GMO and did a full 180. In a world-famous speech in 2013, Mark retracted his earlier views and apologised for having destroyed GM crops. He's since worked with smallholder farmers in Asia and Africa who use GMO to better cope with pests, diseases and droughts. He's still an activist, but now he forefronts science in his activism. Mark Linus, welcome to the Sydney Opera House. Thank you. It's uh, amazing to be here. I want to talk about a whole lot of things with you today, including your journey as an activist. But were you born into a family with a strong sense of environmentalism or social justice? What was your family of origin like? Yes, I I was, but it was in some ways the journey that we all went on together. Um, So, you know, I'm quite old now. I was born in 1973. My dad was working as a geologist, um, so I was born in Fiji, not that far away from here. I grew up in Peru there for three years as my dad was doing geological mapping work. And one of my earliest environmental memories was travelling through a Peruvian town up in the highlands called La Oroya, where the, all of the surrounding hillsides are just dead because it's a mining town. And the, you know, this, the river there runs this peculiar sort of lurid colour shade. I think it was red or, or green. And it's just, you know, I remember just this feeling, this strange feeling of, my God, what are we doing to the environment? You know, just this sort of lead and weight of this pollution. And we're very concerned about acid rain. My dad was one of the earliest sort of organic um, proponents in, in the UK. This was way back in the 80s, and when, when before the movement became really big. And he's actually become uh, sort of critical of the organic uh, movement, as have I, for, for various different reasons in, in, about you know, science and, and so on. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's been a, I've been really privileged, actually, to have parents and family generally who, are, you know, who feel similarly. Um, was it on, on that morning in the, on the Peruvian mountainside when you were a child and you saw the environmental degradation, did, you, did your childish mind sort of take it to human intervention or how did you interpret it? Yeah, it was obvious because there were the smokestacks of, it's the lead industry, I think, from the mines that, in the town. Um, so, yeah, the, the cause and effect were very clear, uh, more so than they are for something like climate change. But... You know, like lots of us in in that sort of environmental generation moved out from, you know, the very obvious local pollution from traffic or from mines or whatever, uh, and, you know, cutting down of trees in your local neighbourhood to a sort of global concern about global biodiversity loss or or global warming, in fact. And so that's been kind of the the journey that, um, sort of the journey of our whole species, really, is that we've been having lots of local impacts and now humanity is a, is a transformative global force, mostly in, in terms of environment, negative. Was your mother a scientist as well? No. Um, my, my mother started off as um, doing teaching work. Um, she uh, mostly raised the kids, to be honest, um, although they then swapped gender roles, interestingly, when we uh, moved to Spain, when I was the age of 14, when my mother then became the main breadwinner and she went off to be a director at a, a language school in Palma de Mallorca. So this was in Mallorca in Spain. Yeah, she's she, she's... Uh, interested in science, but they they're kind of opposites. That's why they work. They have a very strong marriage because <laughs> they're just they're such different people, but they're they're so close. In what ways? Well, 
you know, my dad's a geologist, so you know he's always banging on about the Ordovician or the Precambrian or whatever. And my mum thought all rocks were grey, except those around where she grew up in Bradford, which are black because of the air pollution. You know, so <laughs> you can see there's some contrast in their personality. <laughs> um, you moved around an awful lot as a child and teenager, living in places all around all around the world. What do you think that did for your sense of the world? Uh, in some ways, I, so I had quite a peripatetic upbringing. So I suppose I had a fairly uh, global mindset from early on. Uh, I mean, actually, I still look back on Peru, where I was between the ages of about six and nine, as sort of my my true country. And, you know, I knew more about the succession of all the different Inca rulers than I did about the kings and queens of England. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's such a f- fabulous, fascinating country. It's got the desert and the beautiful glaciated mountains and then the, the jungle as well, the Amazon rainforest. Um, so th- these, you know, it retains a special place in my heart. Um, but at the same time, I've always been a bit envious of people who are very rooted and they've grown up in a small community where they've known everybody all their lives. Because that's the one thing, if you belong to a place because you were born there and you grew up there, then you you know where you, you, you know your place, as it were. Um but uh, so, so I think that's and a lot of my fellow activists were quite like that. I mean, they were all a bit different in some way. Or other. <laughs> um, and, you know, it became it became an identity of itself, actually. So certainly when I left university and became almost a full time environmental activist, it was it was a subculture. It was a movement. It was something that we lived and breathed. And, you know, for many people, everyone they knew was also an activist. Um, and it was and it was a, a label that you that you wore proudly and, and it informed every, all of your eating, you know, living, political opinions and everything else. Um, so I, I wonder whether that p- pushed me into it a bit. But I wasn't comfortable there either. I didn't ever assume the mantle of, you know, the kind of crusty activist as 100 percent of my identity. I also felt like I wanted to I was more ambitious, perhaps, to to make something of myself as a writer or a journalist or something as well. How did you get involved in the first place? Um, This was the time of the road protests in the UK and it was very easy to to get sort of sucked into that because... For an Australian audience. Yeah, so well, what what was happening was that the government had a huge roads program and a lot of these were big bypasses and motorways and things which were cutting through um, what's left of our native ancient woodlands, if you like. Um, And, you know, so you've got the guys with yellow suits and chainsaws going and chopping down, you know, beautiful old trees and so the activists people mobilized I mean they the activists almost came into being as, as a result of that roads program and built tree houses and dug tunnels and just lived and mobilized on on these sites and again you then you'd, you'd they'd get evicted you know and there'd be all of this conflict going on um, and so that was the that was my sort of birth in the in the in the activist movement was was doing that going up tree houses and things like that. When you became involved in the anti-GMO movement what is it that brought you in? You know, I think it, it, it meshed with my worldview at the time, which was that um, the sort of juggernaut of modernity was uh, damaging, well, destroying everything that um, I and we held dear. And you could see that with, with roads. You know, they, the tarmac, the trees were chopped down and this tarmac was laid over where they'd grown. Um, and with GMOs, it seemed to be similar that there was these new biotech seeds, you know, with... Um, with transplanted DNA, uh, and and that they were they were you know going to be in farmers' fields in order that uh, well Monsanto the name I heard at the time w- could sell more of its chemicals, um, and farmers were having to you know so it was almost like there was a commercialization of life itself. It's it's partly that, um, 
And it's partly the reality of environmental destruction, um, which is is happening because we've got you know this uh, huge world population and everyone consuming more and more and all that kind of stuff. So, it, and it seemed to be pushing agriculture in exactly the wrong direction, where there'd be more dependence on chemicals, more monoculture. You know, it was industrial agriculture gone mad. It, it did it, it didn't end up appealing to a lot of conservative people with a big C in many ways. So Prince Charles uh, famously said in about 1997 that genetic engineering took humankind into realms that belong to God alone. The Daily Mail, our very conservative reactionary um, tabloid, had this whole Frankenfoods campaign, which it maintains pretty much to this day. And I remember feeling a bit um, nervous about that because I was not and I'm not a conservative person. I'm a very strongly a progressive. I think of myself as, you know, on the centre left now. I was certainly probably on the harder <laughs> left back then. But, uh, you know, and so this idea actually that you should stop science and that progress is is a bad thing. Um, so that there's 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 a lot more going on here than just one's attitude to the specifics of the science. Back in those full activist days, what were you actually doing um, to protest against GMO? Well, one of the most obvious things that we were doing was destroying them. And from about 1996, 97 onwards, we took it in turns and took it upon ourselves as small groups. You know, we'd load ourselves into a van, drive off to the GMO test site, wherever it was, and, and destroy it. Uh, chop it down with machetes, cutting tools, spades. Dig, dig. I mean, I, I remember destroying sugar beet with spades and just chopping the tops off all of them. And once in a maize field um, in the night time, just slashing them all down with a machete. Actually, at that time, I tell the story in the book, there was the police came and busted us. And um, there was, you know, police dogs everywhere and flashing lights. And, you know, I escaped by the skin of my teeth, but um, several other people didn't. How did it feel to do that? Um, it, it felt valiant, I think. Um, you know, when I looked at these crops, I didn't see, you know, a nice healthy maize plant. I saw some kind of living pollution, something, um, something monstrous almost. You know, you can see that in the Franken foods sort mm. of idea. But um, that's how we felt about it, that the, these crops were abhorrent in some way, needed to be got rid of. And the evidence for their existence needed to be destroyed as well. Yeah. I mean, they were experimental crops. They weren't commercial crops. So we were... I mean, we were destroying the scientific experiments which were intended to establish well, whether they worked or, or whether they were good or bad. Um, I don't think we were interested in the results of the experiments. We didn't think that they should be undertaken at all. And we were trying to stop the whole march of science. And so we were, you know, it's been at the time, I think some of the scientists said this was akin to burning books because we actually didn't want human knowledge to increase in this area um, because it, knowledge equals power in that sense. Um, so we, you know, we were also against uh, animal cloning which was why I was one of the small group that tried to steal Dolly the sheep um, at the Roslyn Institute and failed, sadly, in that enterprise. Um, but, you know, we, so, and we, a lot of people are against reproductive technologies, which are now completely commonplace, like IVF, um, because they thought it would lead to, you know, human cloning. And there was a kind of slippery slope argument as well that, you know, once we start getting access to certain technologies, they may be good to start with, but ultimately they'll lead to some kind of dystopian future. And then you had your very famous about turn. Can you describe the events that led up to that re recantation? 
Well, it, it's quite a long story. So I know this is a podcast, but you probably don't have all the time in the world. But, um, you, you know, like all of these things, there was partly, uh, you know, the reassessment of the evidence. So, yes, I looked at the science and I realized the science didn't support anti-GMO beliefs that I had. But there was also something deeper going on, which was a shift in my own personal sort of identification from being an environmental activist to being somebody who was working with the scientific community. And that didn't come about through my moving into genetics or molecular biology. It was because I was writing books on climate change, uh, which was an easy transition to make as an environmentalist, because obviously we were all concerned about climate change and by and large the environmental movements got the science right there. So there was no conflict. And I went off and I wrote a couple of books and I spent years of my life immersed in the peer-reviewed science. And I found that was something that I loved almost more than activism was was science and just this sense of wonder and, you know, the majesty of the natural world to be able to, to have numbers to, to put to things. And so I would also find that I was involved in the political debates about climate change and I would try to explain that the science was how strong the science was how many different lines of evidence there were to to defend climate change from the attacks of people who were denying it and also the issue of consensus you know that that's such an overwhelming weight of of, of scientific evidence and one which is supported by every academic institution in the world and so the anyway to cut a long story short i the dilemma i was in was that i couldn't defend the consensus scientific consensus on on, on climate change and deny the, an equivalently strong scientific consensus on at least the safety of GMOs, never mm-hmm. mind the political and economic stuff. So, I, you, you, you know, you've got people going around saying they cause autism or cancer or they're bad for health. And those are the main, to be honest, the main rabble rousing <laughs> techniques that there are. And that's scientifically indefensible. And I, I felt like, um, well, it, it had to stop. And certainly I didn't want to be part of it. You liken it to the anti-vaccination movement. It, it's very similar to the anti-vaccination movement because the the, the pitch is the same, that the experts are involved in some kind of conspiracy, that it's harming our, our health, it's harming our children, and you mustn't listen to, you know, don't listen to the to the medics, listen to what you see on Facebook. You know, this is the age of the sort of algorithm-based worldview, you know, where people live in bubbles. And it's also, I think, to do with the rise of populism. You know, you've I don't want to get on to Donald Trump and all the rest of it, but there is clearly some kind of modern phenomenon of anti-elitist sentiment, which I think has has led to a corrosion of trust in institutions and, ac- mm. and academic scientific institutions as well. I mean, it's it's an amazing thing when science itself is being is being questioned, when something that is sort of built on principles of intellectual <clears throat> rigor and research and peer review. Um, so lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people have to agree is is being in itself questioned for validity. I'm not quite sure what that says about us as a culture. At the well, or, or it's a conspiracy theory, essentially. And it's the same for GMOs. It's the same for climate sceptics. It's the same for anti-vaccination people. They assert that there is a conspiracy to fake data on the part of thousands of bona fide scientists. And it sounds absurd, but then conspiracy theories are absurd. You know, it's absurd to believe that, um, well, that JFK was was assassinated by a grand conspiracy rather than a lone nut who happened to be, mm. you know, up on the in the book depository. And the same about, you know, whether aliens built the pyramids and so on and so forth. The the, the sheer lack of evidence for conspiracy theories is what oddly and ironically makes them so appealing to people. I think it fuels them too because you can't disprove something that you can't prove in the first place. Yeah. Well, and it's... It, it provides a mechanism. People look for cause and effect. You know, that's our mm. evolutionary heritage. And, you know, you, people look for meaning. 
Um, you can see that with JFK, actually. If it's, it's more meaningful if there's some grand conspiracy involving the deep state than if there's some lone nut who happened to kill, kill such an important person. Um, and it's, so I think the quest, the quest for meaning and the quest for wider understanding lead people to, to believe in conspiracy theories because then they believe they've got a privileged insight into something which is really going on in the world. So you had a massive backlash uh, when you delivered <laughs> your your famous speech. Um, I mean, the, the the public backlash we've just really been discussing in a way. You know, the public backlash was very. But what was what were the worst of the accusations that were levelled at you after after that recantation speech? Well, I suppose the worst would be that I was on the in the pay of Monsanto all of a sudden, and that um, you know. Uh, and that, you, you know, because the accusation then is that you're you're completely corrupt and that you've just done something for the money, um, and there was no, of course, there was it wasn't true, so there was no evidence for it. But if you have enough people writing this on the web these days, then it can become something which, you know, if, if somebody googles your name, then that might come up in the in the top top results. So there was, you know, there was some, there was a smear campaign against me, and there had been something in the Guardian um, and, and and other places. But to be honest. I'm, I'm not complaining about it because I think I knew what I was getting into. And that's why it took me so long to make my mind up to even do this. I mean, I started having doubts and I even wrote hesitantly a few places from as early as about 2008. Mm-hmm. And I didn't make the speech till 2013 precisely because, and my wife even warned me about this. She said, if you go ahead, you talk about this, it's going to consume years of your life. Um, and of course, that's exactly what's happened. Five years later, I'm still talking about it. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to complain because in some ways I feel privileged to have been given opportunity to to influence a global debate on something. You can't just pick and choose a subject. You know, if I'd wanted to save the Great Barrier Reef, I've got no added value there. There's nothing I can particularly do. But in this issue, this issue um, I, I've got this history, I've got this story, and it's something which attracts attention. So I've felt I might as well use it to try and do some good. Mm. How about your personal relationships? How are they affected by this? Well, I mean, in the, uh, in the outset, I mean, there was people who I was very close to who... You know, even signed a statement against me, and there was, you know, because I was living in the same town in Oxford, there was people who, you know, parties who wouldn't talk to me or would, you know, pin my wife in a corner and say, "What's your, what's Mark doing? What's he up to now? What and this kind of stuff." Um, and, you know, I won't pretend it was it was easy, um, but at the same time, I'm not going to play the victim about it. Um, I, Did I knew you lose what I was doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even my best man at my wedding you know we didn't talk for about 10 years I mean there was other stuff going on because we have different worldviews he's a deep ecologist and I'm right. moving into a sort of <laughs> eco-modernist phase or something but you know I, th- that that was one of the factors but now we're friends again and we see each other a lot and um, you know and that's the case with most most of them so I went back and interviewed people in the book who you know who really who I'd fallen out with mm-hmm. um, because I actually wanted to try and get a bit deeper into this issue and try and figure out what the motivations are. What were those conversations like with old friends who, from the environmental movement who had sort of rejected you after this and then you approached them to say, can I talk to you about this book that I'm writing that outlines all of the views that you hate? <laughs> well, I'm, you know, I was um, uh, grateful, actually, that um, that they agreed to talk to me at all. I mean, uh, in particular, I'd mentioned Jim Thomas, who was the, who's the Greenpeace person who was first first influenced me on this back in 1996. He's still working at a, a group called the ETC Group, which 
is still campaigning against and uh, raising criticisms of, of new technologies, whether it's nanotechnology or even blockchain. Uh, and certainly they are still against, very much against genetic engineering. So he was a good person to talk to. And we had a... Um, you know, uh, uh, what I thought felt was actually quite a, a really interesting conversation, which I repeat almost verbatim in the book, um, because, you know, he's he's somebody who is trying to do his best to, you know, make the world a better place. Uh, and he's he doesn't believe that a lot of the te- technological innovations are going to make humanity better. And I think that's that's a real debate to be had. So I don't want to marginalise and exclude um, people who who continue to disagree with me from 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 these debates, with the exception, I would say, of people who've got something to sell. So the, and the whole snake oil camp, the anti-vaxxers, and people who are who are genuinely doing really serious harm. Mm. Um, and there's some anti-GMO groups in developing countries. I don't know if you want to come onto this or not, like in Africa, who are spreading myths about gay genes and things like that, which stop farmers, some of the poorest farmers in the world, being able to have access to more better seeds, which can help feed their families. So that. I will fight, but I also, but I think there is a real debate to be had, and it's it's good to hear people's views reflected honestly. I mean, this is something interesting that comes out of your book is that um, you know typically the villain in the GMO debate has been Monsanto, and you know I think that Monsanto did some things that can be genuinely criticised in relation oh, yeah, to the development sure. of GMO. Um, you know, like like. Um, you know the the, the 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 seeds that that yeah, that only the round, roundup ready and, exactly yeah. actually if you were going to say yeah you're going to say seeds that only that the, the seeds that sort of don't don't work after a particular period you see that's a myth oh is uh, it that's a myth that they become very associated with that, and that's why I let you How finish that sentence because I wanted to but, see if you were going to say that yeah so the the what happened was that um, there was this thing called terminator technology the idea that seeds wouldn't then reproduce actually you do write about this in your book yeah. sorry mm. and uh, and it was in development and Monsanto took over the company a cotton company called Delta and mm. Pineland that was developing it but then there were, the activists found out there was this huge huge furore that this was a way that the corporations were going to steal the reproductive capacity of seeds. Actually, the the one of the reasons it was developed was to stop contamination. Right, because so it was developed, have, but then it wasn't. Well, it was developed in the right? lab, but it never it was never out there in the environment. No. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but so getting back to to Monsanto and and the and the kind of role of big corporations, um, you know, you actively defend Monsanto in your book in in a way that that is quite you know quite strident. I don't know whether I defend them. I actually talk a lot about some of the uh, damaging things they've done in the past, like manufacturing Agent Orange and PCBs and things, but those tend to be earlier than the GMO issue. Um, So, no, Monsanto is the elephant in the room. I mean, you can't talk about GMOs without Monsanto coming up. And people, as we said earlier, you know, when I was changing my mind on GMOs and talking, that people would say, you've been taking money from Monsanto. So I had to discuss it. But... It's actually a huge and, and a very fascinating untold story about who Monsanto is, what they what they did, and how the how GMO seeds came about in the first place. And I actually felt it was you know an amazing thing for people to to find out more about, simply because it's become so misunderstood and so mythologized. And when you trace um, in in your book, when you go to a lot of places around Africa and you trace the sources of the movements against GMO crops and the propagation of ideas about you know, the fact that they're going to turn everybody homosexual to control the birth rate in Africa mm. and those sorts of homophobic stories. You you trace them back to really unlikely sources. Well, yeah, I mean, the groups who are involved in spreading myths on gay genes and stuff like that tend to be funded by 
uh, European sources. So even even the European Union. Um, I mean, you can see this with uh, golden rice, which is another. Uh, I don't dwell too much on that in the book because it's quite a well-known story. But for anyone who doesn't know, this is vitamin A uh, carrying rice, which has been developed in order to address vitamin A deficiency in uh, young children in, in in Asia in particular. Um, and the golden rice trials were destroyed and uh, have been uh, attacked furiously. You know, the whole idea of golden rice has been attacked furiously by, by NGOs, which, which it turned out were funded by the government of Sweden. You know, and I... What just, was the interest there? Well, because they believe in, you know, they, they kind of have a sort of belief in agroecology and organics. And, you know, this kind of thing has become very almost hegemonic in sort of good liberal thinking people who, who control aid budgets. Uh, they don't realise that what they're doing actually is, is promoting the continuation of poverty mm. by stopping um, improvements in agriculture. It's a sort of interesting thing between <clears throat> the idea of natural and unnatural, right? It comes to well, the cause of but this. But that's the foundation. The nat- you know, it's called the naturalistic fallacy by scientists because that's, that's actually what underlies the whole organic movement. Um, and, you know, the idea that natural is good and synthetic is bad, so the, the, you know, the artificial is bad and the, the natural is good, there's no scientific underpinning to that. You could have the same molecule, which is, which is you know, derived synthetically or, or comes from a natural source, and it's going to have the same effect, right? It's the same molecule, but it's considered differently in, in, the, in the organic industry. And you can see this even with pesticides. So you can have a um, pyrethrum, which is a pesticide that's derived from chrysanthemum flowers, and that's an approved organic insecticide. In fact, it's very potent. Uh, but you can have a pyrethroid, which is a synthetically derived uh, equivalent molecule, and that's banned because it's a synthetic pesticide, right? What's the difference? Well, they're probably the same. So whether it's natural or not doesn't tell you anything about the toxicity or anything which which really matters in, in the real world. And so that's what bugs me about uh, about the whole organic thing. We know that um, that Greenpeace is about to adjust their stance on GMOs and other environmental parties around the world are reconsidering policy and stuff. How about organic movements? Well, I think organic will be the last change on this. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's great that Greenpeace is sort of exiting from the anti-GMO fight, and I think they're doing so for the right reasons because they want to be on the right side of science on all of the issues they work on, which is which is admirable. Um, organic is has a slightly has has a different problem though because the concept is flawed. Like I say, if it if it's based on a fallacy that natural is better than artificial, mm. then it's not a science based concept. What you need to know actually is whether something's ecologically better, mm. whether it's toxic or non toxic, and those are things which those are things which science can address. Whether they're natural or not is not the issue. E. coli can be natural and and, and can kill you. You know, Ebola is a natural phenomenon and that can kill you too. So mm-hmm. you know, uh, it, like, like I say, you need to know for sustainable agriculture. Um, whether something's environmentally better. And organic tends not to be because it has much, much lower yield. Mm. So if you're going to try and feed the world organically, you either have to lose half the world's population or plough the whole all of the rainforests. Right. In what way is that environmental? As well as GMO, the big thing that you've done most of your life's work really around is is climate change. And before we end, I guess I'd like to think about the way that climate change is sitting politically around the world at the moment. We're in Australia at the moment and Mm. our government has among its prominent members um, people that 
question the idea that climate change is caused by human behaviour. What do you think about those sorts of politics at the at the top level? Yeah, Australia's second only to the US in terms of the peculiar polarisation of the climate change debate. Um, I mean, you could see this with Tony Abbott's latest salvo to try and destroy the Paris Agreement. I mean, the only other person to have done that is Donald Trump. And and this has happened before. It happened with Bush as well, um, with I think it was John Howard who mm. had a similar climate sceptic approach. And I don't know why it is that that you have this, but it's this, pol- this sort of left-right polarisation on the climate debate I think is very destructive. Uh, what should happen is that all parties should accept the reality of the science and they should put forward proposals to tackle climate change which are compatible with their ideo- ideologies and different political um, approaches, which is fine. Mm. You don't have to tackle this in the way that the Greens want to, right? And I've actually said the same with nuclear power. I'm pro-nuclear. So I want to tackle this in a way which most conservatives are very comfortable with. Um, why can't it's a low carbon power source? You know, they can have all the nuclear debates, but conservatives are generally supportive of nuclear. It's low carbon. So let's accept climate science. And that could be your, your way forward. I'm just sort of speculating here. But the problem, what, what tends to have happened is that the the sort of climate narrative has become sort of wholly owned by morally self-righteous Greens, and that really pisses off the Conservatives. And their re- re- reaction to that is quite childish and juvenile, which is to n- deny the existence of the problem to start with. Uh, and that pro- that process has really reached its apogee in, in the US, where you've got the Republicans, where climate change denial is now an article of faith for the entire party, right mm. up to obviously the level of president. And then you've got the Democrats, who are then proposing all sorts of you know, left-wingy type approaches and the whole process the whole process just goes on and it's happening here in Australia too which I think is is, is dangerous and damaging and I, I, I want I would like to not see the same thing happen with GMOs um, let's try and keep the the basic science away from the the, the the different political approaches so you said just now that um, that one of the problems with green movements potentially at the moment is that they've become very rigid and quite self-righteous where do you think the future of well, where do you think green activism is now and and how do you see environmental activism as evolving to be effective? Well, the problem with moral self-righteousness is that, that it's a dead end. Um, not only is it um, off-putting to wider society. I mean, I'm sitting here in Sydney. I flew to Sydney from um, from the UK and the carbon output of that is is probably countable in the tonnes. You know, it's like three or four tonnes. And I know a lot of people who are climate activists who would not do that. And they would say to me, how do you go to sleep at night knowing that you're responsible for several tons of additional carbon pollution? But, you know, that's where do you take that argument? In that that case, you never drive a car. You you shouldn't even have kids, by the way. You should never eat anything. And Mm. and all of a sudden you can you can't continue being a human being in, in any kind of civilized way. So nobody can be morally pure. And actually the moral purity um, demand is is a dead end, and so you have to address this in ways which are more political, uh, and which deliver what people want, um, and which is energy, and you know whether it's heat or cooling or you know transportation, moving you around, bringing your food, whatever it happens to be, without destroying the earth ecology. And to do that, we're going to need all the best tools we've got, which includes modern uh, technologies like nuclear power and even GMOs, God forbid. Mm. Um, but it's not only those things. Those are actually two quite small parts of a much wider challenge. Um, so, in fact, we invented this philosophy called eco-modernism, which was an attempt at least to bring this out into the open, 
the challenge that you have with with more mainstream environmentalism with its refusal really to 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 engage in you know the realities of <laughs> wider society yeah so tell me about eco-modernism uh, well there's actually a manifesto out there called the eco-modernist manifesto but it was a it was about the need to yes we we need to you know re- to remove the scourge of extreme poverty um, we need to continue economic development, but we also need to recognise that the Earth's uh, you know, capacity to absorb ecological shocks is limited, whereas those tend to be the opposite ends of different debates normally. So let's um, see if we can figure out ways where you can be progressive and you can be environmentalist and you can be pro-technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a pragmatic approach, really. Yeah, I suppose, but you know, everyone thinks they're pragmatic. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've spent your career grappling with the very, very big problems of the world. And you've had a poke at quite large solutions. If you could boil all of that down into some sort of credo, what do you think it would be? I believe in progress. I believe that we should um, uh, get rid of uh, high rates of infant mortality. We should uh, help countries emerge from poverty. We should feed the 800 million people who are going to bed hungry each night. And at the same time, we should uh, tackle climate change and try and protect the earth from um, further ecological harm for the benefit of not just future human generations, but the rest of life on earth. Pretty good list. <laughs> where do we start? I don't know. We need to give it a name. <laughs> but where do we start? Uh, you, you you can't do them in order. You actually have to do them simultaneously and try and figure out multiple wins, really. Because, you know, there, there's ways in which they are difficult to reconcile. You know, if you increase, if you reduce poverty, then you're increasing consumption and then you're increasing material resource use in, 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 in the developing world. Therefore, you're increasing ecological impact. But what's the corollary of that? You increase, you know, you protect poverty in order to stop poorer people from becoming as rich as we are and consuming like we do. I mean, that's morally and politically unsustainable. So we have to find a different way to solve the problem. And as individuals, and, you know, having come from a background of collective action, it's it's can be challenging to look at what, what we as individuals can can bring to a political, what is essentially a political struggle like this. But what do you have any advice for people about how they can adjust or think about the ways that they live that might have some sort of impact for good? Yeah, well, I'm quite sceptical of green consumerism. Uh, there's a lot of, I think, what they is derisively told, called virtue signalling out there. And uh, yes, you know, your personal choices in terms of transport and diet and things matter. I'm actually a big advocate of veganism, despite not being a vegan myself. Um, <laughs> or, or not all the time. I, I have huge admiration for my vegan yeah, friends. I actually want to have a vegan offsetting program where I pay other people to be vegan and I continue <laughs> to enjoy the odd steak. Um, but, uh, you know, the collective action requires politics. That's what politics is, is the way that society, you know, collectively addresses issues, whether it's street lighting or, you know, garbage collection or, or climate change. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. You've got to have politics. And so that's what matters. And what scares me most about the world today is the way that politics is going wrong. Uh, with populist movements, with attacks on immigrants and, and demonising people that, who are different, um, and uh, the way that it seems like the institutions of democracy itself are now under attack. And so I see this as part of as part of the wider struggle for science as well is to to try to you know maintain um, <laughs> sanity, if you like, uh, and and you know democracy needs to be fought for. It's something that I've always taken for granted when I was younger. I could be an anarchist because Parliament would always be there. Mm. Now Parliament itself seems to be under attack and, and actually I think it's time to defend it. So where do you find hope? 
Um, I find I'm I'm find I'm actually quite cautiously optimistic, um, because you know I'm a historian as well, and if I think if I'd been born in I don't know 1900, no perhaps a bit earlier, maybe say 1885. I would have been sent off to the battlefield in mm. the First World War and I would almost certainly have been killed because most young men were. Would that have been a more optimistic time to have been born than we are today? I don't think so. So mm. we've got everything to still fight for. We can, you know, we're going to get a warmer world, but it doesn't have to destroy human civilization and we can still save most of the species. And so let's let's go out there and let's try and do that. Well, Mark Linus on that vaguely hopeful note, Thank you very much for coming on It's a Long Story. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. Mark Linus visited Sydney Opera House in 2018 for an event about the politics of food. Find the link to his talk then in our show notes, plus some other food for thought. Join us on the podcast next week for the incredible story of Syrian architect Marwa al-Sabuni, who chose to remain in her home city during the Civil War. It's a Long Story is produced out of the Sydney Opera House Talks and Ideas program. We're produced and edited by Susie Anderson, recorded by Joshua Craig and John Gardner, mastered by Riley Edwards. Our theme music is composed by Rainbow Chan, with research by Ellen O'Brien and Rachel Power. Thanks to Jacqueline Booten, Flo Mitchell and Nerida Ross. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.